Hello everybody, I'm Heather Ward, SCA Senior Manager of Content Strategy, and you're listening to the SCA Podcast. Today's episode is part of our SCA lecture series, dedicated to showcasing a curated selection of the extensive live lectures offered at SCA's Specialty Coffee Expo and World of Coffee events. Check out the show notes for relevant links and a full transcript of today's lecture. As we're taking some time to work through our 2019 lecture recordings from Expo, we thought we'd take this time to share some lectures from 2018 that haven't yet been released. Also, for more information on the upcoming World of Coffee lectures in Berlin this June, visit worldofcoffee.org. Straddling the humanities and sustainability line, the panelists of today's episode discuss how understanding culture and context improves approaches to sustainability. Drawing on experiences in Vietnam, Mexico, and beyond, they describe setbacks arising when producers and buyers speak different languages of sustainability, data collection is incomplete, and development top-down. This episode shares tips to guide industry actors to think about sustainability differently, ending with steps for how companies can approach system change, improve their business, and create a stronger specialty coffee future. Please welcome our panel, Dr. Sarah Grant of California State University Fullerton, Dr. Kate Fisher of University of Colorado Boulder, Jose Luis Zarate of True Roots International, Lucia Solis of Solis Consulting, and moderator Nora Berkey of The Chain Collaborative. Um, welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming. I know there are so many other opportunities at Expo um, and so many things to choose from, so thank you for, for choosing to come here. Um, my name is Nora Berkey. I am the founder of a small organization called The Chain Collaborative. I founded uh, The Chain Collaborative four years ago, and our mission is to invest in what we call change leaders or local leaders in coffee communities to realize their own vision for development in their own community. Um, so we're going to be talking a little bit more broadly today about um, sustainability and development from the bottom up. Um, it's something that we all practice. Before we start, I'll just have everybody introduce themselves. Uh, so I'm Kate Fisher. I'm an anthropologist and instructor at the University of Colorado Boulder. And so my research is in, is in coffee and, and social issues in Central America. Um, and today I'm going to be speaking specifically about uh, a group that I work with in Western Honduras. Hi, my name is Sarah Grant. I'm also in cultural anthropology. I'm an assistant professor at California State University, Fullerton, and I study the coffee industry in Vietnam. I'm particularly interested in the transition from commodity coffee to specialty coffee and uh, how Vietnam is navigating that, that complicated territory for the first time. Good morning. My name is Jose Luis Zarate. I'm from Oaxaca, Mexico. Uh, I work for a nonprofit organization through Roots International. And uh, our work is for monitoring and evaluation and uh, organizational development for coffee growing communities and organizations in Latin America. Hi, and I'm Lucia Solis. I'm an independent consultant, so I'm going to give the kind of commercial perspective. I work directly with producers in Central and South America to do exactly what Sarah's talking about, to move my clients are people that are mostly been working on commercial coffee and they're trying to move in the direction of specialty. And so my job is to give them sort of those tools um, through fermentation, through different processing techniques to control their flavor profile and move their, their economic bracket in a different way. Thanks. Um, 
So before we get started again, um, we were a little bit late to the game of requesting translation. So, um, but uh, for anyone um, that doesn't know about the situation in Nicaragua right now, um, that's where I live, and so it's something that touches me. Um, but there are a lot. There's a lot of protests going on um, and some violence. Um, there have been some deaths so far. So if anyone. Um, sees anyone else from Nicaragua, just ask how they're doing. And also, it's just a reminder to us that um, all throughout the world, there are um, that a lot of a lot of things going on right now, a lot of war and violence. And um, I just wanted to kind of put, put that call out there just for us to think about it. Um, so, yeah, um, how did this sort of panel come about and, and why are we here today? Um, all of us, you know, have been working in the sustainability sector in coffee, and, and uh, it's something we think about every day. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's something that is a confusing and, and complex topic. And our job is, you know, we think is to make that word and the work that we do, you know, more understandable. Um, so prepare just a little something. I'm going to be speaking more off the cuff um, later on, but I just wanted to read off uh, what we've prepared and kind of give you a sense of what this panel is going to be about. So the language of sustainability and the word itself is cultural and means different things to different people. Doing sustainability work is about understanding that and ultimately building the power of producers to control their own outcomes in sustainability. That can be done by local institutions or by non-local institutions and can even be done in collaboration with non-producers. But the work in building the power of producers and knowledge across the chain for a more sustainable future needs to be done well, and it needs to be done based on intimate knowledge of producing communities and in collaboration with them. This is important because when sustainability is not done that way and it is top-down, there are severe consequences, many of which we are fighting today. We are even calling fighting those things sustainability work. We need to recognize that much of the work that is often done in the coffee sector today is based on an old paradigm and refocus our efforts on building the power of producers and their organizations to create their own sustainability based on their own language of the concept. This may take some new ways of thinking for all of us, producers and non-producers alike, but the outcome will lead to stronger, more empowered producers and businesses that can speak the language of sustainability across contexts. Um, so first, we're going to have Sarah Grant speak. Um, wait. Oh, <laughs> yeah. um, and she demonstrates through a case study from Vietnam how to understand the different languages of sustainability across cultures and why it is important to be a sustainability translator. She provides an example of local organizations that are doing this translation work and having a big impact. Wait a sec. Wait a sec. <laughs> I'm just going to say what everyone's going to uh, speak about, and then you can all come up individually. Uh, Lucia Solis will demonstrate. Solis. Solis. Lucia Solis uh, demonstrates through her own work and experience that when we also fail to translate the language of science or the language of quality to the local context, we end up not empowering producers. The good news is we can learn from other supply chains to change our approach to empowerment and communicate in the coffee supply chain. Kate Fisher offers, through her work in Honduras, an example of how to build better projects that focus on quality by collaborating with and listening to producers. There are certain things we can ask when we recognize producers also have something to teach us and our companies. Um, I will speak after Kate and demonstrate through an example that took place in our not-so-distant past how, th how doing things without understanding the local context or without collaborating with a focus on true sustainability from the ground up can lead to catastrophic effects. 
and these effects undermine our industry to the point that it's seen as not sustainable anymore to be a small producer. And lastly, Jose Luis will demonstrate through his work in Mexico how it can still be sustainable to be a small producer if we focus on understanding the concept in their language and then work to ensure that they can drive sustainability through their own organizational development. So thank you, and we'll start with Sarah. Hi, thank you for being here, and also thank you, Nora, for bringing us all together to have this conversation about sustainability from probably a different perspective than some of the other sustainability panels. I think we're actually back-to-back with one of them right now. Um, So just a little bit about why I am interested in sustainability from a cultural anthropological perspective and how it fits into my work in central Vietnam. Um, It's probably no surprise to you that Vietnam is still the second largest producer of coffee in the world. Um, It's also probably no surprise that they're pretty invisible at the expo here, right? Vietnam doesn't exactly have a big presence in the specialty coffee world. That doesn't mean that they're not moving in that direction as a producing country. Um, It just means that there's a lot of limitations. There's a lot of funding, um, kind of murky restrictions around what's possible in a country like Vietnam. Um, And part of that is uh, the history, right? Vietnam is a relatively new coffee-producing country. Uh, There is a colonial history. Uh, The French planted coffee there in 1856, and it became a colonial cash crop in the late 1800s. But obviously the war has a really big impact on the coffee industry there. Um, The American War, the French-Indochina War in Vietnam obliterated what is now the primary coffee-producing region in central Vietnam. And that has a lot of implications for how people think about sustainability in that country, especially coffee producers. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring up the war today is because a lot of potential buyers of specialty coffee in Vietnam don't have background in this history. So when they use a term sustainability, uh, and there's not a perfect direct translation, but the closest translation that you might come up with in Vietnamese has connotations to environmental sustainability, specifically around the use of dioxin and Agent Orange in the Central Highlands coffee producing region. So when someone says, you know, we want to create a sustainable coffee industry for Arabica production in this part of Vietnam, sustainability translates in a very, very different way. So producers aren't having the same conversation as potential uh, potential buyers and um, agronomists who might be coming to Vietnam to explore the possibility of specialty production. And then, of course, the post-war economic development context is also very, very important to understand. So the coffee industry, as we know it in Vietnam today, is actually quite new. Coffee wasn't really replanted until the 1980s, and it was part of a larger Eastern Bloc um, communist investment project. Uh, Soviet Union, Eastern Germany, Cuba, agronomists from then Czechoslovakia have invested a lot of money in developing the industry into what we know it today. And in 1986, when the Vietnamese economy opened up to foreign investment, um, that's when you have the large multinational corporations, the big four, swooping in and starting to develop the industry in a direction that's pretty commodity-oriented. And that history is really important, too, because coffee producers in Vietnam, as we know them today, all they know is 1986 Nestle, 1986, um, sort of the, the introduction of Folgers, for example, into Vietnam. And that's what the history of coffee is for a lot of producers who are there now. 
So the possibility of specialty coffee production is is relatively new. And when a buyer comes in and isn't aware of this complicated three-part history, um, it's very, very difficult to translate what a, a Western company is envisioning for specialty production and what's actually happening on the ground. So I mean, one of the main points I, I want to make today is that to develop a sustainable coffee industry in Vietnam requires a deep understanding of these histories and how producers experience these histories in their everyday lives. Um, for example, um, this history might mean a resistance to engaging in what we might see as transparent coffee practices. Right? Being transparent and signing papers has a long, complicated history in Vietnam. Signing your name to a contract, signing your name to a certification scheme might implicate you down the road because there's a history of having your name um, you know, abused and circulated in ways that can put your family in prison, right? So that history actually means a lot when you're uh, trying to develop an industry that requires transparency. Not everyone in Vietnam wants to be transparent for these complex cultural reasons. But there's also a large industry perspective on what sustainability is in Vietnam and what it can be. Um, there's a recent IDH report uh, that uses a couple of really interesting quotes. Um, I put one of them up here. Um, so while farmers are not formally organized into aggregated units, cooperatives, exporters are able to leverage their relationship with collectors and aggregators to form large schemes. And then recent reports also make a case for consistent monitoring and evaluation. And I've been studying the language of sustainability projects in Vietnam quite a bit. And this is the sort of language that, again, um, is a very top-down approach to sustainability. So when you have someone evaluating what's wrong with Vietnam, what's missing from the Vietnam coffee industry, especially when it comes to developing Tipica for the first time, right, or working in wet mills for the very first time. Um, you have a lot of producers who are being told what they're doing wrong and how they should be doing it from a very Western perspective. Now, that's not new in the coffee industry, but it's a limitation for developing the industry in Vietnam. And this kind of language about consistent monitoring, of course, brings up that surveillance history that so many families still hold very familiar and, and very dear to their hearts. Um, it wasn't a pleasant 30-year post-war history to be surveilled by the state. So you have these coffee producers who are being told that, you know, if we, if we can just monitor you better and if we can control what you're doing better, you'll be more sustainable. And being told what to do, again, links back to those complicated histories of um, colonialism, but also post-war development. So for the rest of the talk, I want to focus on producer perspectives in Vietnam. Um, I've been conducting a handful of ethnographic interviews over the past well, probably eight, nine years at this point, and sort of watched a lot of, a lot of producers transition from commodity coffee into specialty coffee, which is a lifelong project, right? It's not easy to just say, you know what, I'm going to abandon everything I know about coffee and try and get into the Arabica game because, you know, you can see the price differences. Um, so for a producer, they often use the term, it's fuktap, uh, or it's complicated, um, because no one really knows what a sustainability certification is. And the most common sustainability certification in Vietnam is Nestle's 4C. Right? That is um, probably the only one most, most producers know about. 
so when the term sustainability is used, people link it to Nestle and they link it to commodity coffee. So the idea of having sustainable Arabica production in the highlands 1,500 meters and above of central Vietnam is, is foreign to most of these producers. And then, of course, education is the key, but a lot of these workshops are inaccessible and um, Here's where we start to see a couple of small organizations, specifically uh, one called La Viet Coffee, another called Philanthropy, trying to make sustainability translatable, commensurable in central Vietnam. Um, so education is key, but these workshops have to be locally produced. It doesn't help if a large multinational corporation pops in for two days to do a training workshop and it's not properly translated into Vietnamese, or maybe it's translated, but the cultural concept of sustainability isn't translated. And um, this also brings up a really important point about the conflation between environmental sustainability, economic sustainability, and social sustainability, because those terms are, or so the concepts are used interchangeably a lot when training workshops are being held in central Vietnam. So um, being clear about what kind of sustainability you're talking about is the only way that Vietnamese producers are going to sort of grasp what investment um, opportunities exist around sustainability and what the long-term implications of a sustainability project are. Are you talking about soil sustainability? Are you talking about uh, being able to send my child to university in a larger economic sustainability context? Or are you talking about social sustainability and gender equity? Um, so leaders within the specialty coffee industry in Vietnam are taking on the task of translating this to a broader community by experimenting with long-term sustainability initiatives rooted in education. Um, the term for sustainability, Ben Vung, is typically associated with economic development, but uh, small coffee NGOs and La Viet Coffee, which is um, a small company that has been probably at the, the forefront of the specialty industry's development in central Vietnam, they've been translating sustainability um, by using the English term, right? So instead of trying to come up with a matching Vietnamese term for sustainability, they're just using English and calling it sustainability, putting sustainability in English on their packaging, in their workshops, and saying, let's not even try and get into the murky territory of trying to translate this. Let's just do it from a Western perspective because that's how we're going to attract potential um, buyers for our coffee once we get to you know, 86 points and above. So Leviat has developed a handful of um, sustainability workshops that are mostly rooted in uh, wet mill training. So as I said, wet mills are few and far between in central Vietnam. Um, the coffee is there, but the processing is not. And most of the, the value that's lost in Vietnamese coffee is coming um, post-harvest, right? And I think um, La Viet Coffee has done a whole lot of branding work in some ways, and we all know how important branding is when you're talking about sustainability in coffee. And La Viet is the, the, the company that, of course, they have the resources to do this. They're, they're already established. Um, they have plenty of investors. And they're just trying to come up with a model that will make sense to Vietnamese domestic consumers. So instead of thinking about selling their Tipica's Elsewhere, outside of Vietnam, they're working on developing a domestic market first and trying to create a sense of what sustainability means in a local market. 
And I think I'm almost out of time, so I just want to end here. Um, you know, I'm a cultural anthropologist. I don't work in the industry. I have no particular vested interest in the industry, except that I care about a lot of the producers I've been working with over the past decade. And time and time again, I think what's lost in the industry's conversation with a lot of these producers is this idea that sustainability is cultural. And I know Nora mentioned this in the introduction, but I can't stress enough how important it is to think about the notion of sustainability as not being one big umbrella that you can apply to any particular country, especially a country where the industry is quite new and like every coffee producing country out there has a complicated history. So sustainability, sustainability is cultural and outside sustainability initiatives should not, sorry, should consider a lack of commensurability, not as a barrier or a challenge to working in a particular country, but think of it as an opportunity to work from a bottom-up perspective instead of imposing notions of sustainability on local producers. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm Lucia. Can you hear me? And um, I'm here to give you a little bit of that kind of inside-out perspective uh, in the work that I do. And my background is in winemaking. I studied at UC Davis uh, winemaking, and then I worked in Napa Valley for... Uh, nine years before starting in the wine industry. So I'm coming at it from the perspective of another industry that has turning an agricultural product into a beverage that we consume. And my role is really in the application of science. So uh, on the one side, you see these one liter fermentations. And this is a facility in France where yeast strains are developed to work uh, some of them application for beer, some for wine, some for bread, all of these different industries that use fermentation to impart flavor and to impart, uh, to add value to the product. And yet in coffee, I started this work three years ago and there really was not that view where the fermentation was a place to add value. So what I do is I take the science from what's done in the laboratory and then apply it at a real scale. So this is a five ton fermentation in El Salvador uh, for a client of mine and saying, how do we start to give producers tools that are already available in most of the other industries that we are very familiar with? And what does it mean to empower these producers? Well, what I realized when I started this work is that most producers don't cup their own coffee. So my clients that are trying to move from commodity to their specialty industry, they really weren't aware of their baseline and what their coffee really tasted like. So I saw that was a big disconnect, needing to have that understanding first, because if we don't have this baseline, then we really couldn't move forward. I also realized that in the coffee industry, because we have this roasting step, there's a lot more lax with the the hygiene of facilities. If you go to a winery or a brewery, they're some of the cleanest places you will ever see. The tanks are pristine. The floors are clean. Everything is, is beautifully... Um, actually, I'm going to go back to this picture of uh, Cliff Lady Vineyards where I worked. This is a really common view of the wine industry. Wineries are beautifully clean. And when you go to most, um, most mills, if most of you have visited wet mills, there's not that concern for cleanliness. And I, again, I think that comes from, well, coffee's roasted. It's going to be okay. Nothing's pathogenic. Nothing's going to hurt us. 
but we're not valuing this fermentation step as an ability to create flavors that could impact either reduce the quality of the coffee or improve it. We're only looking at it as a risk. Most producers think of the fermentation as, I want to hurry up and skip this step because I don't want my coffee to spoil, but they're not thinking, well, if we can make really bad flavors in the fermentation tank, couldn't we also make really good flavors as well? Like this is a place where you're having an impact. So instead of reducing the risk, let's harness that, that potential. So that's really what I focus on is spreading these tools. And fermentation is one place where we can add value. Um, yeast is a place where we can add a tool to the toolbox to create these um, different abilities for producers to differentiate themselves. I think right now a lot of the power is held in the roasters to you know, buy some green coffee from Guatemala and then put their roaster stamp. Was it roasted by Intelligentsia? Was it roasted by Blue Bottle? Um, and that's how most consumers find that added value. But we can move further um, or closer to origin and have producers themselves have some of that differentiation and not just leave that in the hands of of uh, roasters. So that's, again, my, my focus. And um, I noticed that that difference uh, in coffee versus where I worked in wine, that a lot of the demand for coffee was coming from the consumers and coming from the roasters and kind of being pushed onto the producers, where in the wine industry, so this is the, my model of how I, I saw things working in the, in the wine industry, uh, sorry, in the coffee industry. So the question is, what are consumers willing to pay for coffee? Maybe they're willing to pay 3 or $4 for coffee. So then that tells a roaster, okay, if the consumer is willing to pay 3 bucks for a cup, this is how much I need to have my roasted coffee for, which means this is how much I'm going to buy my green for, which means this is how much it needs to cost when it's landed, which means this is how much it needs to cost when it leaves origin, which means, okay, I'm going to pay the farmer 14 cents. And it's really pushed back based on what the consumer is willing to pay. In the wine industry, it's completely different. We start the opposite way. We start with how much does it cost to grow this grape? So if you work in Napa Valley, your farming costs and the cost of land there would mean you buy a Cabernet Sauvignon for maybe $15,000 a ton. One ton of grapes, $15,000. That is what the market will allow. That's what it costs to have land there. That's what it costs to employ people, to work the land, etc. If you go... I think three hours to like the Central Valley and you go to Lodi or someplace like that, one ton of grapes, which makes, again, makes the same amount of wine, one ton, it'll cost you $500 because land is cheaper. Uh, it's a lot hotter. The quality is not quite there. So based on how much the grapes cost, then it's up to you as the winery to say, do I have to sell this bottle for $10 or do I sell this bottle for $500? And then you find your market and then it, it sort of moves forward. But it starts with how much do the grapes cost? And what I saw in the coffee industry and what to me is not sustainable is really starting from the outside in, saying what are people willing to pay and then we'll work backwards. And, and the other thing that I've seen from the kind of the, the direction that makes it really difficult is consumers are not just driving the price by saying like this is what I'm willing to pay for coffee but also saying well these are the flavors that I like so something that I've seen that's really popular right now are you know the natural flavors and some of my clients that have come to me um, have come because 
a roaster has told them they really like naturals. They would buy more of their coffee if they produced the certain flavor profile. Well, my, my client is a producer in Guatemala, and it's really humid. So when they tried, and they do normally wash coffees, and so when they tried to do naturals, they, bought, they invested in the raised beds, they invested in the labor to continually turn the coffee, and it just all molded because it's a rainforest. <laughs> it's not the you know, dry highlands in Africa. So a lot of the, again, the direction was coming as feedback from consumers saying, this is what we want to see, instead of from the producers saying, well, this is what we can produce and this is what is available to us. So that's where I work with them to say, we can get those flavors in a different way. But my point here is just to talk about, you know, where is this demand coming from and where's the pressure coming from for, uh, for producers and for farmers creating this coffee? And so that was one of the lessons that I think we can really learn from the wine industry is saying in the wine industry, producers have the most power. They, they di dictate what their product is going to cost based on how much it costs them to produce it. And they dictate the style of what the flavor is going to be of their product based on their conditions. Napa Valley climate is really different from Washington State, from Germany, from France. And that's what dictates the flavors, not the market. They're not really listening to consumers saying, well, what, what kind of wine do people want to drink? Some, some places are. Some people do say, oh, there's a trend towards lower alcohol wines. Let's figure out how to make those. Or there's a trend for you know, natural wines. Let's figure out how to make those. But for the most part, it's really from the producers out. And again, what I've seen in coffee is everybody's kind of giving all of these pressures and feedback to, to farmers. This slide is just to illustrate. I've done this work in 13 different countries. Um, I work with very different, uh, diverse of producers in very different climates, very different starting material, very different resources. And most of their concerns are, again, very risk-averse. It's, it's very much, how do I make sure that someone will still buy the coffee? How do I make sure that I don't um, ruin this coffee before it goes out? There, there's a lot of pressure because it's the producer's role to create these lots. And then the roaster and green buyers, roasters, and, and consumers to say, well, I don't like it, I don't buy it, and then kind of move on. So th there's really a... Um, disproportionate pressure on one side of the market, even though we talk about being a chain and working together from the production point of view, I don't see that risk being spread out across the chain. I see it really concentrated on, on one end. And this is another example of uh, a mill that I've worked at. And this is a very typical view of a mill where it's, it's seen as a process. So this is a place where a volume of coffee is converted, a volume of cherries is converted to green coffee. That's sort of the, the mentality of uh, most commercial coffee, volume, throughput, getting it um, from one end to the other. But I try to focus on, I don't think the industry is going to change, um, and I don't think producers are going to be empowered until the mills look more, not like wineries because it's a very different product, but when there's a value towards hygiene towards the thinking about what's being produced here and not just looking at it as volume, but saying all of these different processing steps impact quality. So this is my other model of in the wine industry, the most important thing that dictates the price is the fruit. How much does it cost to produce it? What is our, and you know what, that's something that's really interesting that I realized in uh, working in coffee is a lot of producers didn't know their cost of production. They didn't know these numbers were not right at the tip of their tongue the way they are in, in other industries. So again, it, 
depending on how much your fruit costs, that tells you what, if you have a $500 fruit from Lodi, you're probably not going to barrel age. Each one of these barrels is about $1,000. So if you have $500 fruit, <laughs> you're probably just going to ferment in a stainless steel tank, maybe bottle it really quickly and get it to market. Whereas if you start with $15,000 fruit from Napa, then you're like, okay, well, we have more money. We know this is going to be a really nice bottle of wine. So we're going to invest in aging it 16 months in new French oak. So also the price of the fruit and its intention dictated, we're going to do different things with this fruit. Another contrast that I see in coffee, there's not a lot of different tracks. The fruit comes in and we treat most of it the same way. Um, there's not as much intention to say, this is our best fruit, we're going to treat it this way. This is something else, we're going to do this way. And there's not that differentiation of products. Most most mills that I work at are really optimized to do one thing really well and to do that at volume. So that's what I work with. That's another tool that I try to give to producers to say, you can have a differentiation of products by treating them differently and not necessarily having to plant new, new varietals um, without necessarily having to expand in other ways. Using the tools we already have, let's explore this, this area. And another thing I think we can take from the wine industry is there's a really strong culture of research uh, in, in agriculture with universities like UC Davis, universities in France. There's a lot of effort into learning about cultivars. And right now, WCR is doing a really great job, but they're new. <laughs> there's not a lot of uh, resources like that available to coffee as much as there has been to wine. And another uh, word that really... Has a, just is very triggering for me is a word terroir, where I feel that in the wine industry, terroir is used to empower uh, wineries, and, and we use it to pay more. Say, well, I really like a Burgundy, and I want to pay for that because I have these associations with that, or I love the Napa Valley, or I want some wines for a Barolo. But for some reason in coffee, I've seen it used the other way. I've seen it, oh, that's from Brazil. I'm, not, I'm only going to pay X for a coffee from Brazil. I'm only going to pay X from Vietnam. And just having these associations. Um, and again, I think terroir is a really interesting and important component to the conversation. But the way that it's used, I've seen it used as a tool to keep producers and say, I'm not going to pay more because I, I have expectations from this place already. And for me, sustainability... Um, like Sarah was saying, there's so many ways you can apply it, um, and it can mean so many different things to people. So my personal definition and, and what I work with for sustainability means that producers can keep producing coffee. So it's not just about can we keep the environment clean, can we use better methods for farming, can we um, you know, pay decent prices. It just, for me, creates a culture of if this isn't a viable industry, a lot of my producers are planting other things. They don't want to plant coffee. And for me, that's not sustainable. If, if there's no raw product, the rest of the chain is really in danger. So for me, sustainability means creating an environment where we can share information and where producers want to continue to produce coffee. And this is just a map of Napa Valley, again, where I worked. And you can see here that it's a really dense really dense population. I mean, from top to bottom, that's probably about 25 miles, and there's more than 300, 400 wineries right next to each other. And all of these wineries, they're not necessarily competing um, because that that method doesn't work for them. So by being so concentrated, they realize that if someone's going to come to visit a winery, 
they're probably going to visit more than one. And so they work together to make the area be a place that people want to visit. And they do that by sharing information. And having worked in the Napa Valley with other wineries, it's very common to go into other wineries and to ask them about their process. Ask them about, did you buy, did you try that piece of equipment? Did you like it? Did you try this instrumentation? No, I didn't like it. Or yes, I, I thought it was great. And, and together, you can get better more quickly. Um, in the coffee industry, I've noticed that there's such a, f- a fierce competition for limited resources, that there's not as much a culture of sharing. People are very guarded with their information. And if something worked really well for me, I don't want to tell you because you might take business away from me. And I think ultimately that's not sustainable because that hurts and it keeps people from having this access. So I hope that that's something that we can learn from from the wine industry where we can, sharing information, everybody can get better more quickly. And that's all I have. Thank you. About to speak is Kate Fisher. All right. So I'm going to take us uh, back to to anthropology, and I'm going to talk a little bit about a specific project that I have been working with and and, um, helping on and learning from, and using it to think about what does it mean to really listen in a in a very literal way, um, and how even when that's your job, you can still screw it up. So... Um, this is a, an organization in, in Western Honduras, um, that's mostly men, um, and it's very small farms. Um, these are, these are about two manzanas. This is less than two hectares. These are, these are not huge farms. They've got three to 8,000 trees on them. Um, they're not, you know, they're not doing a whole massive amount of volume. And so most of the, the mills are shared between neighbors and between families. They are very small, wet mills, and I've got some, some pictures of those coming up. Um, and they are not, you know, lots of technology. They are not even usually running water except from a hose. Sometimes there's electricity, sometimes there's not. Um, and so the interesting thing about the way that this particular project and business works is that there are two payments. Um, and so you get the first payment when you you hand in your coffee. Um, so it's dried to between 15 and 20%. Um, there's not a really great way to be able to tell that. There's not a whole lot of moisture readers. So you get around a dollar, generally, at that point. Um, and then the coffee, you know, does its thing. It eventually makes its way to the U S and is sold or wherever it's sold. And then you get the profit from that. Um, so if it's sold at, at four fifty, you know, minus the costs, it's going to depend on how much you end up receiving. So you get a, you get a payment during the lean months, uh, when cash flow is a problem. And the idea is that people will not have to go to pretty predatory money lenders that are going to charge them upwards of 40% interest, which is basically going to crush you know, everything that you're going to get for the next one and just continue in that cycle of, of having to make payments. So with the quality project specifically, um, you know, this is the model that exists and our goals were, first of all, what are people even doing? Um, and one thing that, that any anthropologist will tell you after their first semester is people will tell you one thing and they're doing another thing. And this is not because they are liars or they're trying to trick you. It's because people don't realize what it is that they're doing or they don't know every single step or they don't pay attention to it uh, or they have a very particular way of understanding their own processes. So, you know, people would tell us one thing, and this is where I'm going with the like getting things wrong part, and actually be doing something else. Um, and so what are, what are, what is even happening? 
how do people make decisions about when coffee is ready to wash? How do they make decisions about when it's dry if you don't have any kind of moisture meter and you're just using your fingers? What are you feeling for uh, or listening for? Or tasting for. Um, so that's the initial phase, and it's been going on for three years, and we're still learning new things. Um, and then over the long term, the the goal is really to get enough data that is specific to this region. And this is also part of the challenge, as we know, with coffee, is that there's data out there when it's shared. It's great that Hawaii's got all of this information about how they, they process coffee, but that is really not relevant Um are barely relevant in a place that's very high and is very, very cold um, and very damp and very overcast most of the time, even in the dry season. So data that is from that particular region from themselves. And then how do we, or is there a correlation and a connection between that and the final sale price and what the flavor qualities are? Um, are somebody doing something that you can learn from? So again, with this sort of sharing, sharing information um, that Lucia was talking about, and the idea is not that I'm going to come down and be like, this is what you have to do, but here's all the information we have. You can decide now based on your workflow and your goals and your everything else, where you want to invest your time and money. Do you want to put in a solar dryer? That's been the first thing that we've seen people doing that that's been really useful um, because it is so dry and so wet. Um, and so people have, have pretty much unilaterally decided to install those. Maybe other things are not as important, or maybe you don't care. And I don't mean that as a bad thing. I mean, like, if this is what I'm getting for my price and I'm okay with that, like, I can be okay with that. Um, and so we are, like I said, we are working in places that are that are rural. Um, they're not that far. It's like an hour from, from Marcala, which is a major ca- coffee center, uh, by pickup truck. But not everybody has a pickup truck. And the cost of gas to get down there and to bring your coffee down there, there's a lot of issues. So just looking at what this means to listen, uh, both of these were shown to us as examples of selective harvesting. And so again, we asked people, you know, how do you pick? They said, well, we're selective. Okay, great. And your pick are selective? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I have dozens of pictures of of all kinds of variations of Skittles here um, where everybody says they're being selective. And that's true to a degree, but what does that actually, actually mean? Right? And so if you are going to show up for three days and be there, you're going to learn one thing. Um, if you're not able to be there during the picking or something like that, right? you're showing up later, you can't tell once it's, once it's out of the cherry what exactly it was, not easily. Um, and so a lot of this has been, how are people picking? What are the issues? Uh, you know, if, you're, if you're hiring pickers, it's really freaking hard to convince them that they should spend way more time to get way less volume for which they're going to get paid less money. There's not a whole lot of motivation there. Um, if you're, if you're the picker, right, that doesn't work. So trying to understand it, um, looking at other examples of how other people pay pickers or who does the picking, what kinds of sorting methods are possible. Um, so there's been some experiments with flotation and, you know, just having a, a place to do it even to find a physical space to sit there and sort after picking is, is a challenge. Um, you know, can I put kids to work doing it? What does that do? So we've had that issue where we were like, yeah, we totally understand selectivity. And then we would, you know, show up at the right moment, which is also a challenge. And this is what we'd see. So we all were speaking literally the same language, uh, in this case, Spanish and absolutely not understanding each other. So, it's cold and wet. Um, that, that top, 
yellow up and down is the relative humidity. It goes up to 100%. I live in Colorado. This is very stressful for me um, that it gets above 30% ever and it like never gets below it. So I, I stress a bit. Um, but it is, you know, the air temperatures and the soil temperatures are really close, but they are cold. That's down to 10 degrees Celsius. Um, and so just this past harvest, you know, there are people who had stuff and it took it a month to dry. It wasn't molding. It wasn't anything wrong with it. It was just slow. So we have very limited space. Um, you know, how are decisions made? A lot of times the decision is made to move it because you run out of space and you say it's because it's done, but really, again, you're not lying. You're not trying to pull one over on the, on the buyer or on me. But you, if there's a if there's a window in which you know we can judge demesalagination to be finished, you might pick on one side or the other depending on what your workflow looks like. So, all of this is to say um, that there's no good answers, right? Um, and that not everybody can spend months and months and months. But if you can have somebody on the ground who really does listen to these things um, and not just listen but watch and not judge and just try to figure out what's happening, then any kind of programming that you come up with, this is not something that's impossible to replicate. Um, if you know Maida Orellana Powell, this is her project. Yes, she's an amazing, incredible woman. Um, but it's not impossible to do what, what she's done with this um, and with some of the other associated projects that are all about making the community more viable in the long run. So projects for teenagers and women and, and horticulture and all sorts of other things. So. How do people invest their time or money? They need to know what it is that they are doing collectively first. And then my job and the job of, of the other people in the quality project is to try to parse that out. Um, are there connections here? And so if you any statisticians out there who want to volunteer, I've got some work for you. Um, but to try to figure out, right, like what is actually happening? Because it's amazing to me that we know so much about, you know, total dissolved solids and this and that and all the things that happen when it's one degree different on the brewing side. And we really still don't understand what's going on in growing and, and processing. So there we go. About to speak is Nora Burke. Um, but uh, I just wanted to bring it back to kind of the main main question of why we're here and, you know, promoting, supporting bottom-up development versus top-down. And so, you know, that's just sort of the, the main question for this panel is why the coffee industry should support bottom-up development. Um, and so the first question, you know, I ask is, well, what's wrong with what we call top-down development? Um, and I'm just going to give a, a, an example from um, our sort of, as I say, not-too-distant past, um, which is a kind of example of top-down development and the catastrophic impacts of that. Um, so I'll go back a little bit, uh, 30 years to basically um, end of the 1980s, 1990s, um, when uh, the debt, debt crises in many uh, developing countries, uh, many in Latin America, um, in Africa, um, led to specific policy prescriptions by development agencies, uh, such as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, or what we call the Bretton Woods Institutions. Um, and essentially, the uh, the idea in order to to continue to support these countries or to reduce their debt or to con continue to uh, give aid to these countries, uh, these policies were were uh, created, and countries had to comply with certain um, certain rules from 
lending institutions in order to receive uh, continued aid. And those rules were really geared towards, you know, essentially reducing uh, kind of inflation at, at all costs, so low hiring interest rates. Um, the private privatization of industries was, was required. Uh, deregulation of industries was required. So essentially just, you know, growing free trade um, in, in various uh, countries. And so the impacts of this um, are widely studied. Uh, there's a lot of resources in our handout, digital handout. We've included a ton of resources for you to look into. Um, but these were uh, these are called structural adjustment programs. Um, and a specific impact on coffee uh, were that developing countries were encouraged or forced to grow cash crops like coffee. Uh, and so the idea was that instead of growing their own food, they would become net importers of food and exporters of coffee um, or cash crops. And so the idea was, well, what, what are these countries good at? They're good at cheap labor. That's their advantage, their comparative advantage. So you know, rich countries, we're going to give you things you need, like food, and you're going to give us things we want, like coffee, and that's going to make you richer. Um, so more coffee, less grown food grown for yourself, more store-bought food. Um, but what we're, you know, uh, this didn't just happen in coffee. Um, Lucia has told us a little bit about, about wine, um, also rice until the 1980s. Uh, as an example, most rice eaten in Haiti was grown in Haiti. Between 1985 and 1995, Haitian rice production dropped from 110,000 tons to 80,000 tons. And within two years, small-scale Haitian rice farmers could no longer compete with cheap, subsidized U.S. rice imports. And by 2006, three out of four platefuls of rice eaten in Haiti were grown in the U.S. Um, and so you see this with corn. You see this with other uh, food crops. So it's just... Um, evidence that these countries, Haiti is also an exporter of coffee, developing country, have become net food uh, importers, and uh, their, their small-scale farmers have had to now grow exports as opposed to feeding their own population. Um, and what are the impacts of this? Uh, well, almost a billion people are chronically malnourished. Another billion are always unsure from where their next meal will come. And this is just the impact of, uh, you know, on food security from these top-down development you know, agency prescriptions. So you, know, you can find examples of horrible impacts in education, uh, healthcare, the GDP of many countries has decreased, um, inequality has exponentially increased. So this is just something, you know, an example of what has happened to food security of uh, essentially you know, small-scale farmers. And uh, this is always, you know, food security in, in recent years has, you know, be, sort of became a hot topic in the industry for sustainability. I have seen it decreasing, de you know, decreasing in sort of um, relevance in the, in the coffee industry, although it's still very relevant. But um, in 2013, uh, the, the SCAA uh, published a blueprint and hunger in the coffee lands. And studies from Central America revealed that a significant percentage of farmers experience food insecurity at some point uh, during the harvest production cycle each year. And so, you know, we see that sustainability solutions now um, for the industry are these, you know, programs to, for food security, organic gardens, home gardens, teaching farmers how to farm. And it's, you sort of say to yourself, but, you know, I, I grew up in Philadelphia. I don't know how to farm. I don't even 
like farming very much, um, and suddenly it's my job as a development professional to teach someone who has farmed all their life to grow their own food and to feed their family. And there's something super backwards about this, but it's because farmers that have been growing food for generations were now told, well, the development you know, approach you should take is stop growing food, start exporting, start paying for your food. And now you know, these top-down models that have been imposed on farmers, well, now the industry... Um, you know, is being asked by, by nonprofits and by farmers, you, know, you need to invest in food security. Um, so now we're sort of paying for the mistakes that we made before when we chose to do top-down development. So um, the organization that I run, uh, the Chain Collaborative, you know, our, our goal is it's not, to, it's not to not cooperate. It is not to not give our advice to our partners um, as, you know, northerners. Um, but it is to listen to farmers and to local leaders and understand what are the solutions that they that they see as relevant. And so this is a photo uh, from our partner uh, community in Uganda. Uh, it's called um, Nyamugoi Parish, and it's in uh, the southern um, southwestern district of Kanungu. And this is a storage center that they have um, built that we funded for this year. And it was their solution. They're a group of unorganized farmers um, in Uganda. And um, they said, you know, we want to organize. We want higher prices for our coffee. And the first thing we think we need to do is build a storage center because our farmers have nowhere to store their coffee. So they're selling it to middlemen. They're also not storing it properly. It's getting damaged. And so we said, great. Then we started to do the research to put into the grants we were writing. And what did we find? In a report from the European Commission Joint Research Center between 1995 and 2005, post-harvest losses exceeded food aid delivery in both eastern and southern Africa. So due to improper and you know, in, in sort of lack of access to storage facilities for food um, or agricultural products, uh, post-harvest losses were incredibly high, meaning there had to be much more food aid. Um, so what if we actually invested in post-harvest solutions and storage? Um, maybe Africans could feed themselves at a higher rate and we could reduce our food aid. Um, and then we also found in a 2016 National Survey of Smallholder Farmers in Uganda conducted by the Consultative Group to Assist the Poor, 80% of farmers stated that they wanted to keep money aside for crop storage, but only 22% were able to do so due to limited financial means. So this is something that farmers wanted but were unable to do. And the reason I bring this up is because this is not something, you know, these farmers didn't go to, you know, get you know, a master's as I did in international development. Um, they just knew they needed this. And then when we did the research after that, we found out, well, there's research to back up what they're saying. Um, but the cost of, of us just, you know, asking somebody what they thought was a good solution was zero. Um, and the cost that's put into a lot of research to find the right solutions by development organizations is incredibly high. Um, so it's not to say that we shouldn't do research, uh, but it is to say, you know, why, not, why don't we ask first? And actually, you're going to find that they're right. And this is what they need, and there's evidence to prove why it's a good idea. Um, so to end, I'm sure it wasn't as uh, quick as I thought I would be, but, you know, again, why should we support bottom-up development? And, uh, you know, also it, we should 
I guess we should ask ourselves, you know, do we think as, as businesses, are we really doing that? And I think most of us think that we are. Um, but, you know, what kinds of questions are we really asking of our, of our producers? Who are we talking to? You know, you'll go to any development organization and the word grassroots has become like the word gourmet. It means, you know, it means nothing. You know, you're going to see the most top-down development agencies saying they support grassroots development. So, you know. Uh, just you know, we need to really think about you know what it is, what development it is that we are supporting, and what sustainability efforts are we supporting. But you know why is this sort of is this you know relevant today? Of course, thirty years ago I gave an example, but um, the World Bank, although ten years ago uh, in a report on development and agriculture of the solutions to rural poverty that were highlighted, only one involves small-scale peasant farmers continuing to farm. So you have a large uh, development organization, obviously very powerful, essentially telling us it is not sustainable to be a small-scale farmer. Um, and it's not, you know, really a solution to rural poverty. And as an industry, we depend on 25 million small-scale farmers. Um, so this is, this should mean something to us and we really should, um, you know, question this and say, you know, we want to make it sustainable to be a small scale farmer and we want that to be a solution to rural poverty. And so I urge us to, um, you know, the first thing that we do to ask a small scale farmer how they continue to farm is talk to them and then do what they say. About to speak is Jose Luis Zarate. Well, in order to save a little bit of time, I'm, I'm not going to use my presentation, so I would like to apologize too, because I am going to read, um, because I don't want to forget what I want to say. So, as you know, I, I'm not a coffee producer, but I have been working with coffee producers for the last uh, 18 years, trying to understand the biggest challenges they face in their work and how they define sustainability. And I have seen how many cooperatives in Latin America have so to make a transition from the production of conventional to specialty coffee. And I remember, remember when I started my career in coffee in 2000, that one of the first things that they had to learn were concepts that didn't exist in their language, such as a specialty coffee, shake around coffee, organic, fur tray, gourmet, direct trade, micro lots, and sustainable coffee. All these terms were confusing for them, and it was difficult to know what was more important, quality, certification, environment, incomes, etc. But the most confusing uh, was to understand between all these qualities which should be included in the formula to prove that they were sustainable coffee producers. In the year 2000, the summary of the Shadow uh, Coffee Expert Workshop promoted by the Commission of, um, for Environment, uh, Environmental Cooperation made it clear that uh, from the perspective of the producers, the main objective of their business is not preserve habits, habitats or sensitive ecosystems or to avoid the use of agrochemicals. All this is very positive, but the producers, for them, the main objective for their business is to earn a living. So, although some things have changed since this report, the world coffee has become much more sophisticated. The spectrum of coffee and specialty coffees has diversified, and the demand of higher quality and consistency has grown. 
but unfortunately, the quality of life of the producers continued to get worse. After 18 years of becoming promoters of the sustainability concept, the producers continue to expect that the incomes they receive for their product will cover their family basic needs, allow them to have money to increase their investment, I have money to save, but that is something that is not happening. Growing coffee is a means of subsistence, but it is not a means of earning a dignified living in many places in the world. Today, the accepted remuneration for coffee production varies considerably, but it is possible to say that currently Mexico is between 75 to 90 dollars per bag of 100 pounds of green coffee. However, many direct costs to, to producers and producer organizations at origin are still not included in this formula, such as family labor, local transportation of coffee, amortization of equipment and tools, and others that are necessary to improve the production and quality, such as internal control for certification training, etc. And as an example, all cooperatives that I know invest some money in business and organizational development. But it's not enough. Cooperatives are businesses, but they aren't run that way or seen that way for the coffee industry. Many jobs from agricultural technicians to managers are done a volunteer basis or are paid very little but they work 14 hours per day or more. Currently, there are businesses model that extract outstanding quality coffee from the best origin con uh, regions, sometimes through direct trade, micro lots or auctions. And also, apparently, some families end up receiving good fair incomes for their coffee. They can only sell 10, 20% of their product in these conditions and the rest is sold in conventional market conditions. Because this is a just a niche market, it's very small and it's not for everyone. What many people don't know is that the vast majority of small-scale producers can sell their coffee because they are members of a cooperative. They are members of a community, and the community is a unity. But once they begin to differentiate themselves by their capacity for sell micro lots, they stop to be part that, of that unit because they sell their coffee out of the cooperative, sometimes for a year, two, or three. So we need to think critically about micro lots and niche market, markets in coffee because they are not synonymous of sustainability. There are people who don't believe that producing coffee is not a business for producers because they say, if producing coffee is not profitable, why they are continuing growing it? But in Mexico, some cooperatives are redefining the concept of sustainability. I have heard many producer leaders say that it's, it's neither possible nor ethical to speak of sustainable coffee production when the life of the producers is not sustainable. 
In 2000, a study carried out in Veracruz, Mexico, showed that coffee producers, for them, the most important thing in plots is not necessarily coffee. This study found that in a typical coffee plot, there are more than 136 species of plants, insects, mushrooms, reptiles, and other animals. Many of them are edible. In addition, they have trees that, which would serve as fuel or build houses, tools, or other objects. Coffee, produce, coffee production is impossible to live on, at least with current incomes. But agroecological production systems allow producers to obtain medicines, food, fuel, work, and family co coexistence. So consider, considering sustainability from this live reality, cooperatives at origin are shifting the way they think about production and sustainability. They are decolonizing the idea that coffee is the most important thing. For a coffee-producing family in Mexico, for example, the new paradigm of the concept of sustainability must include people's quality life. This means being able to produce or buy enough food, being to pay their health expenses when it's necessary, living without fear of insecurity and violence so that they can keep their families together without having to migrate, means not to depend exclusively on incomes from coffee to support a family, and finally they need the guarantee that in the value change of coffee they are treated with equity and justice, and that the profit margins for each person in the change are fair and ethical. So producers need to learn how to become better producers. Everybody said that. That's true. But they also need the financial resources and administrative support in order to build resilient organizations. So what the coffee industry can do in order to help? One, Cooperatives are businesses, and just like any other business, they require efficient leadership and communication. In other words, they need organizational development. The industry can support projects related to this area. And second, sustainability is, is not just about the environment. It's, it's also about livelihoods, and it's necessary to objectively and critically investigate the real cost of producing coffee and do something about it. Thank you very much. All right, so some time for questions. Hi, um, so this is a question for kind of each panelist. Uh, so when we talk about sustainability, it has to include kind of people at the margins. Um, so how do we balance bottom-up development with interrogating power structures that are in each place that we work? Speaking is Sarah Grant. I think this is a bit of a cop-out answer, but I think understanding what the power structure in a particular place is, because I think those power structures are very, very different. In Vietnam, you're talking about a socialist economy that's very market-oriented, and power there exists in this very specific way that's, I'm sure, very, very different from the other case studies. So, I mean, I think first is knowing what the power structure is and what your space, what's base you occupy within that power structure before you even go about, you know, thinking through what is inherently top-down, right? And, and um, yeah, that, that's my starting point, I guess. 
Speaking is Nora Berkey. Yeah, I would just say quickly um, with you know with our partners, I think it's it's a conversation that we have you know that's open um, because there's power structures in in you know for Uganda for example that I don't understand that our partners do, and there's power structures that I'm dealing with that our partners don't understand and I do. Um, so you know navigating that together you know for particular projects is is something that you know we constantly deal with um you know just for example a a school project that we did um there was you know different power structures between the it's a it's a religious community that wanted the school to be run by the church um and the government you know wouldn't you know it doesn't allow certain types of schools to be uh doesn't support certain types of schools if they're built by the church um but you know they had to sort of navigate within their community the, that sort of those power structures and also what the community you know wanted. On my end, you know we're not a religious organization, and sort of the power structures that I'm managing raising money is I you know I can't I can't uh, necessarily as easily raise money for a church-run school. So you know we had to have that conversation of what's you know what's more important to you and what is it that you want, and and be open about you know making kind of decisions within. You know those power structures that exist. So it's kind of just a very practical uh, example, but you know, discussion is the key. Speaking is Jose Luis Zarate. Well, in my personal opinion, um, coffee is super complex, and uh, there is not one solution. It's situational. So the most important thing is try to understand what is the context of the community and partners around this coffee-producing organization or business and trying to find a solution together. But uh, sometimes, in my perception, the coffee industry is forgetting that everybody is our partners. So we have responsibility about this business. It's not just the responsibility of one people, one person, I'm sorry. And... uh, it's frequent to, to, to listen this concept of uh, change of value. But we are not in the same change of value. There are different changes of value. And the, the change of value in which are the producer is a small one. So we have to think on that. If we say that we are together, it's because we are together. Uh, first of all, thank you. I really enjoyed everybody's presentation, and there's uh, sort of two themes that I'm uh, going away with, and I wanted to share my thinking on that and, and kind of want to ask the industry to think about these things. One is the theme that I first picked up on is we're talking about relational coordination within the, within the coffee industry, and I don't know that there's awareness of that concept enough. The, farm, the small-scale producers who don't speak English rarely have a seat really at the table, like really seriously have a seat at the table. And the farm workers aren't even talked about hardly at all. There's beginning to be some conversation. And even small-scale producers need to pay some farm workers and or have their families, right, unpaid. So I'd really like to encourage us to start kind of thinking about that. How do we get all those voices heard so that it's maybe not top-down, bottom-up, but we're all together at, with a seat at this table. And then the other thing that I heard everybody mention was, you know, there's specialty coffee and there's commercial-grade coffee, and very few people can sell 100% of their coffee at specialty prices. It's not all cupped at 88 and above 
and people are willing to pay for the quality coffee, but not necessarily for a sustainable coffee at that price. But even when the commodity coffee is picked and the farm workers and the farmers are treated respectfully for all of that coffee, why pay more you know, or not have a bottom price for all of that coffee? And I, I know there's like this return on investment concept. How do you, other than just it's the right thing to do, I would love to hear the industry give, give ideas of what would be the return on investment for you. T- tell the producers what you want, and then maybe we can you know, have that conversation together. I, I know that's not really a question, <laughs> but if you had any comments on that, or if you've seen that conversation out there and I'm just missing it, I'd love to hear about it. Thank you. This is Kate Fisher. I think we're here because that, that conversation... Is this on? Um, it happens in certain spaces, and then it becomes like preaching to the choir, right? Like, you're all here because you care about this, and then where's everybody else? Like, obviously, there's 8,000 events, and that's where they are, but but you're all here choosing to hear this. Um, and so I have, I have a lot of things I could say on, on all of that. Um, one is, yeah, I mean, absolutely, there is no specialty coffee without commodity coffee. Uh, and we've spent a lot of time, you know, and this doesn't make any sense that if you are more selective at some point in the process and you sell more of your coffee to the commodity, you know, coyote, then you have less volume for specialty, but the score is higher, so your price is higher. And that just makes zero sense if you haven't been to one of these sorts of things, which is expensive to get to, and you need a visa, and you need to speak English, and you need to do all of these other things. And even the, the conferences that happen in, you know, quote-unquote origin can be expensive. Um, and then, yeah, just thinking about this, like, what should people do? I've often kind of thought, and this is a serious overgeneralization, that it's the, like, half in, half out that's the issue. Like, either get all the way out and don't ask questions and just buy it, um, or get all the way in. You know, and it's when you're kind of in and you show up sometimes and you're interested and there's kind of a relationship, but it's not really a true relationship. And, like, this year you want a natural, and next year you're not sure, and you want, like, maybe, you know, a, a mild sort of honey, and, and then you're kind of going back and forth, that that's where it is very stressful. Um, and also maybe kind of what Lucia was saying, like, maybe the customer should not be in charge of things. Um, you know, the customer's always right. Like, no, they're not, actually. <laughs> um, and even if they are, why did they get to decide it? And I don't know, like, I know there's a whole lot of rules about talking about price, and this is my personal dream world in which everybody ignored those rules and maybe just agreed that we should all have $8 cups of coffee. Um, we can't do that because we call it price fixing. Um, but we can like think about what would it take to, to sell that. And maybe if you just can't buy a $2 cup of coffee, like figure it out. I don't know. That's my like t- treading on the line of what I'm allowed to talk about. But um, I do wonder, you know, the customer doesn't really, and the customer doesn't really care half the time. Right, depending on where you're selling to, do they really? Can they taste the difference between an 84 and an 87? Some of them can. A lot of them are like, oh, good, it's coffee. Let me put some milk in it. Hey, I just wanted to say uh, I'm Peter. Uh, I live here. I'm trying to do the direct import. I just want to say thank you once again. I think um, it's very humbling, but she just stole the question I was going to ask is the disconnect between <laughs> And, and I think that's what you've done, like the work you've done in Uganda, the work you've done in uh, South America, and then Vietnam, and then for Mexico. I think for me it was, what would you say the breakdown is, and I really feel is the communication between 
the producer and the buyer. And if you look at basically what you're really doing, it's not you're not going and creating the stores not there or anything. It's just that you're able to communicate effectively to the people who are there. And one thing that I want to encourage you is there are great people like you who go there and make an impact, but the day you decide to come back and live with your family, that process breaks. So one of the things that I would really encourage is that maybe pick a local, right? Try to pick a local and mentor him through the process. And especially this would be the youth. You might find the most uh, hardworking person because I'm one of the ones who are trying to move back to Kenya because when I see what you've done, but I know there's a huge disconnect. I love that this country is so efficient that I don't have to think about other things. And all I need to do is maybe speak to a way that people can understand me. But that's not something they understand. So that's what I just wanted to just share with you. And, um, you know, the mentorship and the succession plan, bake that in because how I realized my grandmother who was illiterate Mm -hmm. but reads the Bible is there was a missionary who came and listened to her and translated it. And that's why there are a lot of Christians in Africa who don't speak English. And I think that's the same concept I would actually just encourage whenever you go, maybe try to audit those things into the local language, but grow them into and see what fits in based on the buyers. Speaking is Kate Fisher. Yeah, I mean, this this stuff isn't easy. Sarah and I have PhDs in a field that is essentially like how to talk to people. Um, And we get it wrong, you know? And so I think part of it is also like not being afraid of failing at it as long as you're really trying and coming at it from a real place and like also recognizing that there's tons of information on this stuff out there and kind of going back to, we lost Lucia, but uh, coming back to her point about sharing and not being afraid to share like, oh, well, this has really worked and, you know, some things translate super well across contexts and some things have to be absolutely like pinned to that one place. You're not going to know what that is unless you talk to other people who have done it um, and, and share all that knowledge, so being a little less proprietary with some of that stuff um, might be good. Yeah, and just lastly to your point about having, you know, local uh, mentorship. Uh, yeah, absolutely, that's the, the key. And I think, um, you know, <laughs> very uh, unfortunately often, there, you know, we come here to SCA as representatives of the people that we really wish could be here in our place. Um, but yeah, that's that's something we do, and I would love to connect with you if you also have advice on how to improve the mentorship that we that we do. Um, so yeah, come talk to me. Hi, my name is Megan Montgomery. I'm a graduate student at the University of Montana, and just finished my field work in Oaxaca, um, working with a cooperativa called Unecafe that works with AMSA. But um, have a general question for all of you in the work that you've done in different contexts um, with these organizations that are trying to understand those power structures, political, economic, ecological, that really constrain what people can do um, and respond to those. To what extent do you feel like even these organizations with the best intentions really are just replicating those power structures and to what extent they are pushing against them um, to try and change? Either because it's just not realistic to push against them or don't have the cons- that kind of concept of what a bottom-up model really would look like. Um, just kind of struggling with that in the data that I'm sifting through right now. This is Jose Luis Zarate. I'm sorry, uh, probably I didn't understand very well the, the question, but I just want to say that uh, Oaxaca, if as if you know Oaxaca, you know that Oaxaca is another country. We have 16 different languages in the state, 16 different ways of thinking. 
So, so even if it's good to have a model and to have a certain guidelines that can guide an organization, it's important to think in the context because in other way you are not going to be successful. Um, is is that something that answers your question or not? Kind of, yeah, to the extent that I guess the organization that I was working with, they it is Oaxaca and they work at a statewide level in all 16 different, um, different sort of ethnic groups or identities within the state and every, every region has their own contextual abilities. Yes, uh, well, and it's something that, that is not going to change in the short and medium term. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long process. Development is not like a... It's, it's, I'm talking about development. And development is something that takes a lot of time and investment in, all, in many senses. So um, uh, I know that probably for you some of these changes can look super slow. But in, in, in Oaxaca and in other parts in Mexico and Latin America create this level of uh, changes, it's a success. It's, it's, some, it's a big success, success. And suddenly, something, something is going to happen. So for example, uh, in Veracruz, Mexico, uh, and I put some examples about that, I started working with an organization in, in Veracruz, and they started at the same level that some other cooperatives in Oaxaca. But right now, they are super successful and they, they develop their organization. They, they have this vision to create a different structure in which they have really good skills in terms of leadership, communication, teamwork, uh, is work team? Teamwork? Teamwork, I'm sorry. So, um, so it's going to take time. It's going to take time. And, and in some cases, they are going to fail. That's, that's a reality too. So I, I knew some, I know some people that uh, that uh, they were growers, coffee growers for many many years, the whole life, and they had to stop because it's impossible to live for, uh, from coffee, and also because the their cooperatives didn't evolve, didn't grow in 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 the good direction. This is Nora Berkey. Okay, I'm going to have to go to something else right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I would just say for me, it's, uh, that's a constant question, sort of reproducing the same power structures or you know, doing things that I think, is that really against kind of what I, what I believe? But I would just say, um, even for coffee businesses that want to make the change, I think uh, the system that we live in, in order to be profitable, you know, for us in order to raise money, um, it's, it's, you know, like you had to play the game, and you, even though you hate it, uh, and I think that that's a challenge. And so I think kind of policy change, and um, you know, understanding that actually maybe to be sustainable in this industry means that the way things are now have to totally change because it's not, you know, going to be profitable for anybody to be sustainable. Actually, um, we need to stop saying, you know, there's a business case for this because there actually isn't if, unless business changes and the way we do business. So that's my last statement, but I have to go. So if anybody else wants to keep talking, please do. That was Nora Berkey, Lucia Solis, Jose Luis Zarate, Dr. Kate Fisher, and Dr. Sarah Grant at Expo in 2018. Remember to check out our show notes for a full transcript of this lecture 
and visit worldofcoffee.org for tickets to this year's event. This has been an episode of the SCA podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.